Hello, and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be on the relationship between the Christian and the state. So we are in season four and taking a step back, bringing in lots of different content and ideas and history, philosophy, all these kinds of things, looking at them from a macro perspective, connecting all the dots and the pieces and tying all of that together in a roughly streamlined order. And that is season four of this show, which we are currently in. And so the section that I'm covering now is a continuation of this, continuing these ideas and thoughts. And that brings us to this aspect of Christianity and the state, and the conflicts therein. So I think that this is definitely most applicable to Christians, obviously. But in addition to that, I think the principles and the methods, the approaches, the strategies are also very applicable on a secular level as well. So kind of like how you could read the book of Proverbs, or you could read the Sermon on the Mount, or other biblical passages, and whether you're a Christian or not, or of some totally different religion, or an atheist, or who knows what, you can still get value out of those ideas, those concepts, that philosophy. Uh, I think the same would be true of this as well, because the overall idea is that the state is immoral and corrupt. And it's not just the state, it is the systems that we live under and live within and are a part of to some degree. And so there arises this question of, well, what do we do about it? How are we to act? How are we to respond to these issues that we find ourselves in within the context of this corruption, this immorality? And the Christian approach, I think, is one that is very helpful. I think it is one that it is that's very spot on and one that can be very successful as well. So it's got practical aspects as well as the moral high ground, so to say. And so that's what I want to present here. I think this is, in my opinion, a much better version of the agorist strategy of operating outside of the system. I think think the the Christian strategy uh, far predates agorism, but it is a very similar strategy and brings about uh, very similar results and goals and methods. So the format for this episode will be that I'll mostly be going through various Bible verses and passages. I will also do some quotes from some early Christian fathers, as well as some historians, as well as some people that have written on this subject of the relationship between the Christian and the state, and bringing some examples from them. And so that will be how I'll do this, and then basically give some commentary and tie everything together in between each one of these readings. I think this is the best way I can do it, because oftentimes with these kinds of things, I I can't say it any better than it has already been said. But I can, bring all of those other sayings together all into one place, put it in a certain order, add some context, and I think that will be very helpful and very valuable here. So to just start off with, the idea of Christianity is one where the Christian is always seeking the ideal. And this is represented typically by uh, the Christian seeking perfection. 
it is known, well known to everybody, all of humanity, but definitely to Christians, that perfection is not something that can be attained. We are not perfect, and we will never be perfect. But even though that is the case, we are to seek perfection, to grow closer and closer to perfection, and always be seeking this ideal without compromise, and we will grow in our maturity and in our sanctification. This process of sanctification happens in this type of way. So to give a few examples of this, some short ones, we've got in Matthew 5, verse 48, This is Yeshua speaking, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Go back to Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to the entire congregation of the Israelites and tell them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Yeshua has made me his own. So just a few examples of how uh, there is a biblical mandate for the Christian to seek perfection, to seek holiness, to, uh, to seek the ideal. That is the goal. And if we recognize that, well, I guess I'll just get into the next part where we show some biblical um, recognition that the governments of the world, that having human rulers ruling over us is not the ideal. So we can go to 1 Samuel as the best example of this, because it's very explicit. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 20. Samuel was not pleased to hear them say, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to God. God said to Samuel, Listen to the people, to everything they say to you. For it is not you they are rejecting, they are rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they have been doing to me, from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today, by abandoning me and serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. Samuel reported everything God had said to the people, asking him for a king. He said, Here is the kind of rulings your king will make. He will draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots. Be his horsemen, and be bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He will appoint them to serve him as officers in charge of a thousand or of fifty, plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, and making his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters and have them be perfume makers, cooks, and bakers. He will expropriate your fields, vineyards, and olive groves, the very best of them, and hand them over to his servants." He will take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys, and make them work for him. He will take the 10% tax of your flocks, and you will become his servants. When that happens, you will cry out on account of your king, whom you yourself chose. But when that happens, God will not answer you. However, the people refused to listen to what Samuel told them, and they said, No, we want a king over us so that we can be like all the nations, with our king to judge us, lead us, and fight our battles. 
So, yes, that makes it extremely clear. God specifically says that having a king ruling over you as a people is a rejection of himself, because that is his role, and they are putting a human being in the role of God ruling over them, which is not only uh, taking on that role of God, which is wrong, uh, it is also just immoral in general through many other biblical principles. And if you notice... A lot of the other things that he does say that the king will do, he talks about how uh, he will basically turn everyone into his servants, he will take their money, he will give it out to his servants. So think of the state and corporations where the state takes all this money, and then they give billions of dollars back out to their friends, their corporations, that would be big pharma, military industrial complex, those types. And this is exactly how things work. Who goes and fights the wars for our state? Well, it is the regular people. It's us. It's your sons and daughters. And so that is the warning. They wanted it anyway. But the overall point here is that God specifically says that choosing a human king to rule over you as a people is a rejection of God. Therefore, going back to the principle of the Christian seeking the ideal, obviously having a king ruling over you is not the ideal. Now, you do have to make a bit of a step here in that choosing a king to rule over you through a monarchy is, I grant, different than living under the government of a democratic republic or whatever that has morphed into. Those are different things. But to me, the way I would uh, bring this into a modern context would be to say that the point was you have humans that are getting appointed to rule over other humans, and that that is wrong because that's the role that God is supposed to play. So in our modern government, we have humans that are elected, chosen, and sometimes just uh, chosen by those in office to rule over other humans, which is wrong. And it's just like the people of Israel, they chose their own king. If you want to argue democracy, that is uh, at least the closest you can get to the Bible referring to democracy. And that would be that the people as a whole uh, voted, in a sense, they chose their king. And that king then ruled over them. And yeah, God said it's a rejection of them. And that is very similar to the way most modern governments work today. So, if that is the case, that is something that lays the groundwork for everything else. So while that gives a good uh, on-the-ground perspective, a very material perspective of our current situation, there is this spiritual aspect, this immaterial aspect as well, that does need to be covered. And so this would be this battle between light versus dark, this battle between good versus evil. This is something that is talked about a lot, as well as the spiritual aspect of having uh, spiritual beings, whether you say Satan or the adversary and Yeshua and God the Father or the gods or the Elohim or angels or whatever you want to call the various beings in the various places. The point is that there are, according to the Bible, there, there are spiritual entities that have influence in our material world. And the adversary has the probably the largest role to play, as far as we can tell, in this, aside from God himself. 
And so that it becomes very important to understand the role of the adversary and how he does have influence and how that is manifested in our current world, especially within this context of trying to assess our government and our systems. And so this will bring us into the concept of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. One is ruled by the Most High God and by Yeshua. The other is ruled by the Prince of Darkness, which would be the adversary. So that is something that I will show through these next few sets of verses. And I'll just go ahead and read off a bunch of them in a row, and they should give you a pretty good feel for where we're going here. So we'll start off with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. For you used to be darkness, but now, united with the Lord, you are light. Live like children of light, for the fruit of the light is in every kind of goodness, rightness, and truth. Try to determine what will please the Lord. Have nothing to do with the deeds produced by darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak the things that these people do in secret. But everything exposed to the light is revealed clearly for what it is, since anything revealed is a light. This is why it says, Get up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Therefore, pay careful attention to how you conduct your life. Live wisely, not unwisely. Use your time well, for these are evil days. So don't be foolish, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. So this is bringing out this idea that we are to be the light, and uh, probably the most famous and probably best representation of that would be the Sermon on the Mount, where we are to be salt and light. And he kind of goes over what that is. But he, he does make some allusions to how we are to treat corrupt systems of this world, that we are to have nothing to do with the deeds produced by darkness, but instead expose them. And so as light, we are exposing the corruption that exists in the darkness, in the kingdom of darkness. And we are to be seeking the ideal, to be seeking to be pure and holy, not to be foolish, and not to participate in evil or in darkness. Now, the next verse is John 12, verse 31. Now is the time for this world to be judged. Now, the ruler of this world will be expelled. And so, this, these next few are just specifically talking about the adversary. I'm just trying to make the point extremely clear that according to the Bible, there is a ruler of this world. He is an enemy of God. He gets expelled by God. And uh, that enemy is the adversary. And he is the ruler that on this immaterial spiritual level is ruling over this world. He is the one in charge of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of man. This is the one running the world. This is the adversary. So uh, to continue, John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. When he comes, he will show you that the world is wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment, about sin and that people don't put their trust in me, about righteousness and that I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, about judgment in that the ruler of this world has been judged. So again, the ruler of this world has been judged. This is not Yeshua. This is not God. This is the adversary here. 
So Ephesians chapter 2, first two verses here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So kind of flowery language in a sense for describing that there is the prince of the power of the air and uh, talking about living in sin, following the course of this world, and that this is the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So these uh, people that are participating in the kingdom of darkness, there is someone ruling over them. There is a prince ruling over them, the prince of the power of the air. This is not an earthly prince. This is a spiritual prince, and it is all the same prince. So the next part, also from Ephesians, to make this even more clear and specific, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, grow powerful in union with the Lord, in union with his mighty strength. Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So he's making it very clear that there is a spiritual battle going on here, that it is mainly against these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers that govern this darkness, the kingdom of darkness. We are battling against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So this is the spiritual world. And uh, this is just uh, where the adversary is ruling because it does specifically say, stand up against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. And then it specifies that that means we're talking about the spiritual world and not the physical world. And so, yes, it is calling out by name, the adversary. Now, the final one is James 4.4. He says, You unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Which does make a lot of sense if the world is the enemy of God and you are joining yourself with the world, then yeah, that kind of makes a lot of sense. I will, uh, I guess I can skip ahead. Yeah, let me let me skip ahead to one I was going to do later, but it fits in really well with this. And that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. It says, For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive, but each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming, then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death. So this is very fitting here because uh, like I just made the point of, of being associated with the world, being associated with the prince of this world is being against God. God is the enemy of these things. This brings it back to the material level that uh, it says that the Messiah will come and put an end to every rulership. And then confirmation, yes, to every authority and power. 
and it specifies that not only will he put an end to these things, these are the institutions, these systems that are running our world, governments, nations, these kinds of things, kings, and he will put an end to them. Not only will he put an end to them, it says, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So they are directly referred to as enemies of God. And uh, with them being enemies of God, you, you might be able to make a uh, very poor argument that uh, these are the governments of the end times, and they're going to be especially wicked and cruel and evil, and those are the ones that are the enemies of God. But but our government, who is founded on Judeo-Christian values, ours is a good government. And no, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that really doesn't hold water, but I am not able to uh, tear that apart right at this moment, because that's not the point of this episode. But uh, just a warning, some people will try to take it there, and it does not have legs to stand. But back to the point here, he brings that to the material level, saying that the kingdoms of this world, the rulerships, every authority and power is his enemy, and he will put an end to them. Um, And then he clarifies and brings us back to the spiritual immaterial perspective, where the last enemy to be done away with will be death. Death is not a person or a, a, as far as we know, a sentient entity of any kind, but it is something that is immaterial, and it is also an enemy of God, and so it will be done away with. Now, going back to the natural order, when I went over the framework for the natural order in the previous episode, death was one of the principles of the dark side. All of those principles of the dark side will be done away with, and that includes death. That includes chaos. And that includes predation. When I talked about predation, and I use that analogy of a symbiotic versus a parasitic relationship, uh, that ties into the beginning of this episode where Christians seek the ideal. The ideal is life is promoted on both accounts, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, It is not ideal. It is the lesser of two evils to say that life is promoted on one hand in exchange for death on the other hand, or an aspect of that. It's not necessarily that every victim of a parasitic relationship dies, but it is lesser life in exchange for more life. And that is not the ideal and not what the Christian is to seek. And so uh, this kind of ties into the aspect of death. This principle of the dark side of the natural order will be done away with. And as we seek the ideal, and as this becomes the kingdom of God, predation will no longer be a thing. And chaos will no longer be a, a thing. It's not that he destroys all authorities and powers and rulerships, and then everything goes to chaos. And it's not even in the most positive flowery light of anarcho-capitalism. It's not that he does away with all the nations and then all the people cooperate together and do well, and Ayn Rand is very happy with us. That is not what is said either. What is said is that he is the one who rules. And that was the whole point, going back to 1 Samuel, is that God is the one that should rule over man. He is the only one that should rule over man. The principle of hierarchy if you remember, was a principle of the light side of the natural order. There is nothing wrong at all with hierarchy. It is not inherently bad. But when you put within that hierarchy human beings at the top that then force their will upon those below them, or some variation thereof, that is not in line with uh, the way that God has prescribed. Now, moving on, once we have clarified 
these aspects, I think we have made them very clear, that God is the one who should rule over everybody and everything, that God said having a king ruling over you is a rejection of himself, that it's not only the king in the physical level, but there is the adversary, the prince of this world that is the prince of this world, that does have power and authority and is overall the one ruling over this kingdom of darkness and the darkness that we see in this world. So, where that brings us to is, well, what do we do about it? If this is the case, then how do we act? And uh, that's where I'll go to Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through the first verse of chapter 7. And I'll go through a few different examples here that will bring us to answering that question of, well, what do we do? So this Second uh, Corinthians 6.14 This says, Do not yoke yourselves together in a team with unbelievers. For how can righteousness and lawlessness be partners? What fellowship does the light have with darkness? What harmony can there be between Messiah and Baal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will house myself in them, and I will walk among you. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, God says, go out from their midst, separate yourselves, don't even touch what is unclean. Then I myself will receive you. In fact, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God. Therefore, my dear friends, since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that can defile either body or spirit, and strive to be completely holy out of reverence for God. So these verses, again, bring out a lot of these same uh, ideas, a lot of these same perspectives. He talks about uh, how these impure actions can defile body and spirit. It's both the material and the immaterial. He talks about striving to be completely holy, this idea of the Christian seeking the ideal. He talks about how the Christian separates themselves from the darkness in the world. And he starts off by talking about this dichotomy between the light and the darkness, between the Messiah and false gods, between believers and unbelievers, that these are not things that mesh together. So it says, do not yoke yourselves together in a team with unbelievers. Now, I will clarify here on two accounts. Number one, do not yoke yourselves together. It is very clear by looking at what Yeshua says in other places, as well as the other writers in the New Testament, that that does not mean that you should have no association whatsoever with someone who is not a Christian. That is not what it's saying. Yoking yourself together in a team. Think of that imagery of oxen who are yoked together. They are doing the same task. They are tied to each other. They are totally reliant on one another to perform that task. And that is the relationship that we are told we should not get into with unbelievers. So there's a lot more depth to that. It's not just uh, don't hang out with them. It's it's a lot more than that. And on the contrary, we are to hang out with them and spend a lot of time with them and reach out to them. So there's that aspect. The other clarification I will give you is when it goes back to the Old Testament reference that says, go out from their midst, separate yourself. Uh, this is talking about the physical nation of Israel, 
Hopefully you have listened to many other episodes of this podcast and know already that uh, this is different than the modern church. The physical nation of Israel was that material representation of God's people. This is what God's people should look like. At least uh, that was basically the attempt, and they were not able to fulfill that, but uh, this is what God told them to do. He gave them Mosaic Law, where you are to govern yourselves without a centralized government and be under the rulership of God himself. You are to separate yourselves from these other nations, and you are to be pure. You are to be holy. You are to live Live this out in the physical world as a representation of what God wants for all humanity. And uh, this was their role. Now, they did not really carry out that role very well. However, uh, my point here is that uh, I would not go so far as the Anabaptists with the Amish and the Mennonites and still go through this idea of going out of their midst and not associating with them. Uh, That is not a strategy I would go with. And I guess that's not really fair. The Amish and the Mennonites uh, do, uh, along with other Anabaptists, they do relate to their communities and outsiders, but they are very separate communities that have withdrawn from modern society and separated themselves completely. Now, I would go more with, I would argue, the majority of the New Testament and Yeshua's teachings and say that we are to be the salt and the light in the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so with that role, we are to be living in the context of our modern culture, of our modern society. And we aren't to withdraw and just uh, cloister together somewhere else, somewhere outside where we have none, uh, we don't have a lot of that interaction with the rest of society. No, we are to be in society. We are to be the salt mixed in with everything else, the light that is shining in the middle of all the darkness. That is our role. So, with those clarifications, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I guess I should have just read that instead of giving my explanation prior, because he says it better than I did, of course. But uh, yes, he clarifies that we are to be associated with people of this world, even those who are uh, of this world and participating in this kingdom of darkness. We are still to be there with them. It is not our role to judge them or force our ways upon them. Which also, if you look at the positive Christian outlook for joining the government and voting and being a politician and all this stuff, the idea is that, oh, we can insert biblical principles and values into our government. And then what are you doing? Well, you're imposing them on the outsiders of the world which is actually what he just said. You're not supposed to do that. So yeah, there's some conflict of interest there. So it says that God is the one that judges those outside. Who we are to judge is those inside. Make sure that the kingdom of God, that the Christian church is clean, 
that it is pure, that it is seeking holiness and perfection and the ideal. And if someone says, they claim that they are a member of the church, but they are acting in these ways, participating in darkness, then that is someone that you should not associate with in any way, because you do have the right to judge that person if they are clearly and provably acting in those ways while saying they are a Christian. So that is the clarification there. Another thing to bring about is uh, two things that are said about how you are to act with direct relationship with the state. So in Acts 25 verse 8 says, Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And so he's basically saying he follows the law of the Jews. He does not go against even the institutionalized religion that he did have lots of issues with, nor against Caesar. So not against the state that is also very against his ways and biblical values. But he did not go against any of these. He committed no offense on any of these levels. So he is saying that he did follow the law. That is something he was doing. Now, Mark 12, verse 17, Jesus said, Give the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and give to God what belongs to God. And yes, is give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God what is God's. I don't know why that translation is odd there. Uh, but anyway, the point is that the uh, Jesus himself, Yeshua himself, is saying that if taxes are owed and it's the emperor's money, then give it to the emperor. So yes, there are times when you pay your taxes. And that is clarified even more clearly. I'll I'll do Romans 13 next. Uh, But it's not just uh, some parody and uh, some deeper secret meaning. No, he is truly saying that that money is Caesar's and it's his currency. His face is on it. It says Caesar is Lord. He's claiming some sort of divinity right there on the coin give it to him. like that That's his. Uh, but give unto God what is God's, which is everything. But uh, it's also calling out this uh, contradiction in a way where the people of God are carrying the tools of Caesar. They are participating in this world of darkness to an extent. And that is a very gray area that I will not get into, but there is a difference there between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And so when people uh, questioned Yeshua about the issue of taxes, and he says, show me a coin, that technically the Jews of that day should not have had the Roman coin, they should have had the Jewish coin. They did have their own coins. But they didn't. They had the coin of uh, the kingdom of man. And so uh, that is another thing that is being pointed out there. Now, let's go to the verses that are the most popular that everybody goes to on this subject because it talks a lot about this subject. It's very clear, but also fairly short and concise. So I'll read the majority of Romans 13, which uh, just 10 verses is the majority of it. So let's just go with it. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct but to bad. 
Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what is good, and you will win his approval. For he is God's servant, there for your benefit. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword. For he is God's servant. There is an avenger to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey besides fear of punishment is for the sake of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's public officials, constantly attending to these duties. Pay everyone what he is owed. If you owe the tax collector, pay your taxes. If you owe the revenue collector, pay revenue. If you owe someone respect, pay him respect. If you owe someone honor, pay him honor. Don't owe anyone anything, except to love one another. For whoever loves his fellow human being has fulfilled Torah. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and any others are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fullness of Torah. So, uh, yes, this is uh, the key verse about how the Christian relates to the state. The few things that I will point out here, this is not an in-depth study of Romans 13, but uh, the key things to point out here is that just because God says that he uses governments doesn't make those governments good nor does it mean that we should participate in them. It is just saying that God uses them and that he has a role for them, that they have their role to play, that he uses them to punish wrongdoers, and he does uh, give some sort of framework for how a government is supposed to operate. What is it supposed to look like? Similarly to how uh, when he gave Mosaic Law, he ended up talking about kings and what a king is to do, how a king is to rule. Even though a king, as he said himself, is a rejection of God, he still said, well, if you're going to have a king, this is the way that you need to do it. And I would argue the same thing here, that uh, he has said in many different ways in many different places that having a king is wrong. Don't have a king. But if you are, uh, this is the way it should be done if it is done uh, as close as possible to correctly, if that's something that can be achieved. And so that's the same thing going on here. This is the role of a government, what it should be. Do good to those who do good, bad to bad, uh, punish people for their wrongdoings, these kinds of things. And regardless of whether a government actually follows that mandate, uh, God still uses these governments. But we'll get to this in a little bit uh, about some other examples here. But the point is that just because there's an institution that God uses does not by any means mean that Christians have a role to play in them or that those institutions institutions are good. He used Syria, and he used Babylon, and he used all these other empires and emperors where he said they are his servants, his rod, his staff, and they're carrying out his will. But they were very evil people and nations, and that did not mean that they were good. That did not mean that the Israelites were to join their armies and join their ranks and support their kings. No, no, not at all. It just means that he used them. It just says what it says, and that's all there is to it. So, uh, The other part to point out here is what seems like a contradiction, but is not. It is the basis for, at least my view, of the strategy of how do we act. And this is where it is said, pay everyone what he is owed. And this is where it does clarify, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. If you owe respect, pay respect. If you owe honor, pay honor. This is all in the context of how you are to relate to the governing authorities. To be very clear, this is in that context. 
And then right after it says, pay all these things that you owe, it says, if you owe, actually, clarify, pay these things. If you owe the revenue collector, pay revenue. If you owe someone respect, if you owe honor. Um, Then the very next verse is, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. So the point is that if you do owe these things, then you should pay them. You should submit. The very beginning is that everyone should obey the governing authorities. That's the whole point is that you you submit to the government and you do not rebel. You do not reject it. You do not revolt against it. That is not the role of the Christian. I would argue, nor is it the role of the Christian to join it and to support it and get behind it, get inside of it. That's also not the role. But what one is to do is even though if you owe these things, you pay those things, the ideal is don't owe anyone anything. That's a very clear statement here. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. And who do you owe that to? Well, you owe that to God, not to man. So again, give unto God what is God's. Give unto man what is man's. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so if you are participating in the system and you owe the system certain things, you are to uh, make that contract fulfilled. You are to pay what you owe. However, the goal is to not owe anything. That's the ideal that we are to seek as a Christian. So if we're not to participate in the system, but we're also not to rebel or revolt from the system, then we have to somehow separate ourselves from the system as much as is possible which is actually what a lot of those other verses were saying, that you separate yourself from the kingdom of darkness, that you don't um, yoke yourself with people of that kingdom, and you don't participate in their things. Uh, that, that's, that's the strategy. That's what you do. And so that is what is recommended in Romans 13. Now, I'll give some other examples, but first I will read a few quotes from some historical folks. So this goes back to some of the church fathers, as well as some historians talking about the period. So Tertullian says, if he, Christ, would not even once exercise the right of dominion over his own, for whom he did the most menial services, if he, fully conscious as he was of his regal power, yet shrank from being made a king, he gave a perfect example to all his disciples to avoid all which is high and glorious in earthly rank and power. Then St. John Chrysostom, I am a Christian. He who answers thus has declared everything at once, his country, profession, family. The believer belongs to no city on earth, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. Then Neander, It was far from their imaginations to conceive it possible that Christianity should appropriate itself to the relations and offices of the state. The Christians stood aloof from the state as a priestly and a spiritual race, and Christianity seemed able to influence civil life only in that manner, which it must be confessed is the purest by practically endeavoring to instill more and more of the holy feeling into the citizens of the state." Then Edward Gibbon, to get more about how Christians acted at that time. Their simplicity was offended by the use of oaths, by the pomp and magistracy, by the active contention of public life, nor could their humane ignorance be convinced that it was lawful on any occasion to shed the blood of our fellow creatures, either by the sword of justice or by that of war. 
even though their criminal attempts should threaten the peace and safety of the community. Doesn't that sound like someone in today's world? Uh, yes. So the next one, also from Gibbon, we've got a few from him. And he, he was not looking very positively on the Christian church, by the way, if you didn't get that. Uh, but he is talking about the history of that time period. The Christians felt and confessed that such institutions, human governments, might be necessary for the present system of the world, and they submitted to the authority of their pagan governors. This indolent or even criminal disregard of the public welfare exposed them to the contempt and reproach of the pagans, who very frequently asked what must be the fate of the empire attacked on all sides by barbarians if all mankind should adopt the pusillanimous sentiments of the new sect. Then also from Gibbon elsewhere, but while they inculcated the maxims of passive obedience, they refused to take any active part in the civil administration or military defense of the empire. And then finally from Gibbon, the Christians after the conversion of Constantine still resorted to the tribunals of their church to decide their claims and pecuniary disputes. So Gibbon is pointing out all of these things, and I guess I can go back and comment on the Church Fathers as well. The whole point is that uh, a lot of the early Christian church viewed it as not being something a Christian should do to be involved with the state, with magistry, with the pomp and recognition of the state, with military service, with any of these things. So being a politician or being directly involved in the state is something that many in the early church, the Christian church, believed was wrong and not Christian. And so whether you want to argue that is a biblical principle or not, it is clear that a lot of the very early church viewed it that way. Now, a few things are brought up here that I will get into a little more in the next few examples. And I, I, I don't know if there's really much to comment about this other than to say that now, when you read the history of the original church, and uh, Gibbon talks about this in multiple places, which is why I quoted him multiple times, but he is talking about how the Christians were actually threatening the empire of Rome by not participating in the system, that they were a threat and that this was not a good thing. He says that they didn't even use the courts of the system, that they used their own courts, that they wouldn't participate in the military, that they wouldn't participate in political life, that they didn't, uh, they were not Romans in the sense of the word that other Romans would be. And so that was, uh, according to him, a very negative thing. But the point is that that was the view of much of the early church. And uh, should we all take note of that? I would say yes. So the next few quotes here are sections from some books that I personally found very influential and very good. We've got, let's see, uh, oh yeah, one of my favorites would be David Lipscomb, On Civil Government is the name of the book. Then we've got one from Karl Barth from Church Dogmatics, and then we've got one or two from Bernard Eller from Christian Anarchy, Jesus's Primacy Over the Powers. And so all of these give good examples, in my opinion, of what then must be done. How then should we live? And uh, these answer that through examples. And they, they bring up a lot that I've 
talked about and covered in these previous verses, as well as some of these quotes from the early church reference a lot of these things as well, about submitting and about obeying the law, but at the same time, not participating in the state system. And uh, that is uh, definitely the strategy to pursue, in my opinion. So let's start off with Karl Barth from Church Dogmatics. And in this, he's referring to Jesus's relationship to the orders of Judaism and the Roman Empire to these earthly systems. He had no need consistently to break any of them, to try to overthrow them altogether, to work for their replacement or amendment. He could live in these orders. He did not oppose other systems to these. He did not make common cause with the Essene reforming movement. He simply revealed the limit and frontier of all these things, the freedom of the kingdom of God. So the point is, he didn't rebel. He didn't revolt. He didn't change it. He didn't uh, participate in any of these things. He chose a different path. The next one, uh, we'll do a few from David Lipscomb from On Civil Government. It is the duty of the Christian to submit to the human government in its office and work and to seek its destruction only by spreading the religion of Christ, and so converting men from service to the earthly government to service to the heavenly one, and so, too, by removing the necessity for its existence and work. No violence, no sword, no bitterness or wrath can he use. The spread of the peaceful principles of the Savior will draw men out of the kingdom of earth into the kingdom of God. So this is the way that he says Christians should destroy, should take over, should end the kingdom of darkness. It's not with the sword. It is not by trying to actively destroy them. It is simply by spreading the kingdom of God, growing the kingdom of God. And in doing so, it makes the state kind of pointless. If you're already taking care of the poor, why do you need the welfare state? If you already have your own courts, why do you need the court system? If you already have all of these things, if you're treating each other with love and kindness and respect, then why do you need a lot of the other enforcement mechanisms of the state? And that's the whole point. You spread the kingdom of God and the state uh, withers away into non-existence. And so uh, and uh, you could argue that is the ideal. Maybe you argue that that is not realistic, but that is the ideal that the Christian, see- Christian seeks. And if you believe in the prophecy of Scripture that talks about how in the end, the Messiah will put every enemy under his feet, the powers, the authorities, the rulerships, um, that's what he's saying will happen, that the kingdom of God takes over everything. And uh, who's in the kingdom of God? Oh, yes, Christians. So what are we going to do? Well, eventually we take over everything. Does that mean we take up arms? No, no, that is not the strategy. But uh, yeah, it gets it gets interesting. A lot of people take this a lot of different ways. But I will try to stick with biblical principle. Now, the next one also from David Lipscomb. As things now go, every individual in the world might be converted to Christ, and yet the earthly kingdoms would remain in all their present strength and vigor, and the spirit of the world would be cherished in the church of God. But if every man converted to Christ withdrew from the support of earthly kingdoms, these kingdoms would weaken and fall to pieces for lack of supporters, little by little, giving way before the increase and spread of the kingdom of God. 
So, yes, he's talking about how uh, in today's world, which his world was not necessarily today's world, he was writing back during the Civil War. But um, but he is talking about the same issue, that what if the church, what if everybody became part of the church, but the church acted in the statist ways it acts now? Then the church could take over the entire world, everyone could be tr- Christian, but the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of man would still all be here. However, what if every man who converted to Christ withdrew from the support of earthly kingdoms? Then these kingdoms would weaken and fall to pieces, and they would be destroyed. And so if we say that the role of a Christian is to withdraw from support of the earthly kingdoms, from the kingdom of man, well, then that would be the route that I'd say we should go. If you want to go the other route, then you have a flag at the stage of every church and people singing the national anthem and praising all the wars and everything else from the pulpit. Uh, Yeah, you go that route, but um, yeah, some would go as far as say that is a satanic church. I would not necessarily go that far, but uh, I would say that it is not a church that is following these biblical principles that are very clear in scripture. So, The final one from David Lipscomb, and he gives a very good example here of if you if you think about the role of government and he's comparing that to the role of hell. So hell in our former essay, we found was an ordinance of God to punish wickedness. The devil or ruler over hell is God's minister to execute wrath and vengeance in the unseen spirit land. Ruled by the devil who seduces men to sin, it is overruled by God to punish sin and sinners, and so to deter from sin and encourage to good. It is a terror to evildoers. Hell itself ministers good to the obedient servant of God. To seek or resist, to to seek to resist or overturn hell as the institution of God for punishing sinners and destroying sin would be to resist the ordinance of God and would bring swift damnation to the inhabitant of the spirit land that would dare such a thing. So too, human government is God's ordinance to punish sinners. So long as sinners are in rebellion against God and his authority and refuse to be his servants, so long would it be resisting the ordinance of God to resist the human government and to seek to overthrow or destroy it? It is God's ordinance for punishing sin and sinners, and as such, it is right and good for the end for which God ordained it. Because hell is an ordinance of God is no reason that his true servants, the angels and spirits of the just made perfect, should seek to enter it, guide or direct its operations, and partake of its spirits and its rewards. No more is the fact that civil government is an ordinance of God, a reason why his children on earth should enter into and carry forward the operations of civil government, drink into its spirit, and partake of its rewards. It was not ordained for them, but the lawless and disobedient." which we read some of those verses that he is alluding to loosely. And yes, that, that, is, that is the point, that just because God ordains something and uses something, that doesn't mean the Christian should participate in it. And I think we've made it very clear the Christian should not. Now, for another good example here, we are going to Bernard Eller for 
Um, yeah, he gives a good framework here that is very helpful. And I don't know if it's explained at the beginning here. I don't think it is. But he talks about the archies. And the archies would be like the powers, the systems. Um, if you think of the term, anarchy means no ruler. And that would be the archy part would be the rulership, the government, the state, whatever. So um, these governing systems would be the archies. And that's how he refers to them. So with that explanation... And also the note that Mark 12 is the give unto Caesar what is Caesar's passage, because he references that right here at the beginning. So he says, What Jesus accomplished in that Mark 12 confrontation, I suggest, is this. He makes the distinction between the one ultimate absolute choice and all lesser relative choices. So draw on your mental blackboard, if you will, a horizontal line. As the as poles of an either-or choice, label one end the Archies of Establishment, and the other the Archies of Revolution. You need not go to the mental effort of writing them in, but consider that subhead labels could be collaborate with the Romans at the one end and resist the Romans at the other. Conscious, conscientiously pay taxes at the one end, and conscientiously withhold taxes at the other. A little additional thought would show that in addition to the establishment versus revolution, any number of other morally contested archaealignments, such as pro-Torah versus anti-Torah, would fit the diagram as well. Any and all such horizontal polarities, such human alternatives, we will call relative choices. In Mark 12, Jesus says that none of these represents the real issue of human existence and social destiny. These, one and all, are adiaphora. From Wikipedia, that's in Stoicism, adiaphora indicates actions that morally neither mandates nor forbids. In the context of Stoicism, adiaphora is usually translated as indifference. In Christianity, idiophora are matters not regarded as essential to faith, but nevertheless as permissible for Christians or allowed in the church. In comparison to the one choice, that really counts. So let me read that sentence again without that uh, definition from Wikipedia so that it might actually make sense. These one and all are idiophora in comparison to the one choice that really counts. So at the other end of your blackboard, you haven't already erased that first diagram, have you? Draw a vertical line, except don't make it a solid, continuous line. Dots, dashes, or other forms or tenuousness will do nicely. At the top of this line, then, write God. At the bottom of the line, however, we want to put the entire establishment versus revolution alignment, plus every other possible horizontality, and summarize the whole bit with the word world. Now, this vertical alignment in which a person either chooses God or chooses something else, which, however good or evil it might seem, is obviously not God, this constitutes the only absolute choice there is or can be. Quote, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. The book of Revelation is after the same idea in insisting that at any given moment, every person bears either on his forehead the seal with the name of the lamb and his father, or else on his hand the mark that names the beast. Thus, this choice is absolute. 
in that everyone must make it. To fail to choose God is already to have chosen the world. Of no relative choice is this the case. The whole point of Jesus' response to the tax question is that refusal to join the revolution is not the equivalent of joining the establishment, or vice versa. In Scripture, it is only God in Christ who can say, quote, He who is not with me is against me. The assumption that one must either absolutize the state archies as a god, as does the establishment, or else absolutize it as a Satan, as does the revolution, is utterly false. Jesus asks us to absolutize God alone and let the state and all other archies be the human relativities they are, at once relatively good and relatively evil, even as you and I are. The choosing of God, and only this choice, is absolute in that everything else hangs on it. This choice is absolute in that it is the only true life and death choice, the only black and white choice, the only choice between light and darkness, to use Jesus' own terminology. Between God and the world, there is no natural connection, no possibility of gradual transition, no shadings of gray, no middle ground, nothing shared in common between the two ends of the choice, which is why, on your diagram, you are asked to make that vertical a non-line. Here and only here, we are invited, or even permitted, to, quote, hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. This choice, and only this choice, is absolute in that there is no room for dialogue or discussion between the poles, no room for seeking what is true and good in each, for affecting any sort of reconciliation or compromise. Here, there can be no conversation, as there could be none when Jesus chose not to debate Pilate. For when God is that which is to be chosen, quote, to whom then will you compare me? As it is put in Isaiah 40, verse 25, no, all one can do is choose and choose absolutely. Quote, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. And then separately, Bernard Eller writes this, both the revolution and the establishment are nothing more than archie ideologies regarding the use of political power either may be capable of making some real contribution to human welfare, and each is capable of really messing things up. Neither can guarantee anything, whether good results or bad ones. Establishment types are sinners, and revolutionaries are sinners. You can take that to be axiomatic. And so that is the end there for Bernard Eller, and he does make that point very well, I think, that you have this issue of God versus the world, of light versus darkness, and then uh, God is at the top of your uh, horizontal, of your of your vertical line that you made in your head with dashes. Um, God is at the top, and the world is at the bottom. Now, the world has lines going to the left and right of it. There's a horizontal line that goes all the way across the world from establishment on one side and revolution on the other side. And the point is that uh, neither one are God. They are all a part of the world. Those are all um, those are all things that you do in the world of darkness. Those are all responses of darkness to darkness, and neither one is the biblical godly approach. 
And that is what I would argue as well. We are to submit, and we aren't to rebel or revolt, but at the same time, we are not to participate. We are not to be revolutionaries, nor are we to be participants and establishment types. So we are not to be statists, but we are also not to fight the state. And so that is where the the Christian is. It's not that the Christian is in the middle of those things, balancing those two things together. It's that we're on a totally different horizontal line. We're up that, uh, that vertical line up to the level of God. Not that we ourselves are God, but that that is our choice, that we choose to live the way God has laid out for us. And that in spreading the kingdom of God, we, just in that very act, are subverting the systems of this world. We are subverting the kingdom of darkness. We are shining light on darkness and revealing the evil that lies within. That is our role. It's not to fight it. It's also not to participate in it. It is to choose God. It is to give God what is God's. And that is our role to play, to owe nothing. And that is the ideal that, as Christians, I believe we should be seeking. Now, I'll wrap up with a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 3. These would be verses 8 through 18. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, quote, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he is encouraging us to seek peace, to seek love, not to beat people over the head with our righteous ideology, but to just live it out and be good and be loving and that this is the example Christ gave for us. And then he also points out that this might lead you to suffering. But in a way, all the better. If you are suffering for something that is clearly good, and you are living a life that is good, then that is pointing out that evil even more. It is making a very clear distinction between the evil system and the good you are participating in, between the human system, between the kingdom of man, between the kingdom of darkness, between um, whatever that is, the world, and God's kingdom. Those things are very distinct, but that line becomes blurred when you don't have that clear distinction. But if you are doing what is right and clearly what is good, and yet still being prosecuted or persecuted for it, you're still suffering for it, 
then that makes that distinction all the more clear. And um, I, I think that just that wraps up everything. <laughs> I don't know what else I could cover uh, with all of this. And we've reached the normal time limit of our show and beyond. So I will end this here and come back next week with whatever it is I'll be talking about next week. So hopefully you enjoyed this. I think that it lays out the case very well, I believe. And hopefully this is something that is helpful for you. If you have any more questions or you want any more sources or recommendations or anything else that's not in the show notes, then please feel free to reach out to me and I will get those to you. And thank you. There are a few listeners who have reached out with various comments and things. I do appreciate that. I do want to hear from you. And I will also say thank you to those that are still supporting the show. I've had a few folks drop off over the past few months. And so I definitely want to recognize those that are still supporting the show. They are the ones that make this show possible. They're paying for all of the things, the hosting, they're paying for the equipment, the microphone that I am speaking into right at this moment, and all of the various things, the research materials I buy and all of that stuff is paid through your support. So thank you very much. Please do leave a rating or a review or ideally both if you have not done so already, because most of you have not done so already. I do see the numbers of downloads and it is nowhere near the number of ratings or reviews. So if you are willing to do that, please do. It really does help. I'm going to end this here. Thank you very much for all of your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye.